0: To speak at all, I must occupy a position, in a system whose positions I appear now to occupy.
1: Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Adrian Matika, editor of Poetry Magazine. This week, I have the great honor of sitting down with poet and guest editor of the magazine, Sharif Shanahan. We hear poems from his new book, Trace Evidence, and talk about how Sharif gracefully centers love while excavating the violence of our colonial past. His poems meditate on mixed race identity, queer desire, time, mortality, and the legacies of anti blackness in the United States and abroad. Sharif, welcome to the podcast.
0: Thank you. Thank you for
1: having me. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so excited for the three issues that you're going to be doing. It's going to be the May, June, and July slash August issue of Mm -hmm. of the magazine. And you want to talk a little bit about um, your editorial perspective, what you bring to our team. And uh, you know, I can just say it's been a real joy to have you in the editorial room already.
0: Thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been a total pleasure. I think for me, as guest editor, it's important that the issues not seem or read like poems that Sharif likes (laughs) or poems that Sharif would turn to in his private reading life. You know, I think the role as an editor is very different than how I feel, you know, the kind of work that I feel drawn to as an individual reader, you know. And so um, there are kind of two ways that I've been thinking about the issues, you know, maximum inclusivity, and I mean that beyond aesthetic, you know, but also across national Uh, borders, right? So there are going to be two translation folios and two of the issues. And um, to think historically, you know, we are participating in an ancient global art form that has existed in every language and culture we can remember. And um, there's so much amazing work that's being written today, you know, in a contemporary context that we can almost stay there and just inhabit and live in the present moment, which is so rich and alive and exciting and amazing without looking behind us at the the poets who've made what we're doing possible. And so I hope to treat within these three issues those two two elements.
1: I keep asking questions about you as an editor, but I'm wondering in your own poetic lineage, I know there are a lot of people who have inspired you and supported your work, but if you had to pick one, Hmm. Who do you think is the poet who has um, had the most profound influence on you?
0: I'd have to say Linda Gregg. Uh, I was a student of Linda's mm. in my undergraduate at, at Princeton. I was, I was a student of hers my sophomore year. Um, I had the great fortune of taking a workshop with Yusef Komunyaka the semester before Linda. And that was revelatory. And
1: (laughs) what what listeners can't see is the way that you're shaking your head. (laughs) Like, I just can't, I just can't even imagine, you know, like that's, that's too much for one, from one poetry lifetime.
0: Right. I felt, I felt really, really lucky, really blessed. And, you know, what, what I learned from Youssef was really editorial and, you know, on the poem level, you know, he has such a razor sharp editorial eye, you know rethink these words, the diction in line seven, a new title. And of course, he was always right. And it was amazing to see. And so I'm grateful for that. But I, I identify Linda, I isolate Linda, because it was from her that I really learned about the spirit of poetry, and what poetry was a space for, you know, what it could be a space for. Uh, we barely talked about craft <laughs> the entire semester we barely talked about craft we regularly talked about the soul and the spirit and what poetry could be a conduit for what kind of discoveries poetry could enable or engender You know, and it was so clearly a spiritual practice for Linda, the making of poems, you know, and it had anchored her life in ways that she shared with us. That at that time in my life, I think at probably about 19, was really, really important for me to hear and to see. I think I became a poet in that room, a commitment was born in that room. And what's funny about that class, though, is that I actually tried to drop it. <laughs> <laughs> I went the first week, and Linda was super eccentric on a wavelength of her own, and I did not know what to do with my discomfort. <laughs> I felt really uncomfortable that first class, and, you know, she, she asked a question, something like, uh, how many are you? they told me that I need to tell them how many people are in the room and I don't really do numbers. (laughs) And we were like seven or eight students, you know, so it was just like, what (laughs) is happening? And I left the class and had decided that I was going to try to get into a different section. And so I went to James Richardson's section the next week and I had my 10 copies of my poem and I said, I I need to be in this section. I attended the Tuesday section last week, and I really need to be in the Wednesday section because there's this scheduling issue. And he said, I'm so sorry. If you want to continue taking the class, you're going to have to stay in the section you're in. So I went to the bookstore, the Princeton bookstore, and I went to the poetry shelf and picked up Chosen by the Lion, which I think was Linda's third or fourth book, and opened it at random to a poem called Asking for Directions, which... (laughs) was, was devastatingly beautiful to me. And it was an experience that was emotional, intellectual, physical. I mean, I really felt it with my whole being. And when I closed the book, I just thought, whatever that is, I need to continue to pursue. I don't know what just happened to me. I know that's a poem, (laughs) but you know what? It was just a full, it was just a full body experience. And, you know, all hyperbole aside, I think it, it, was, it changed me. I think that moment changed me. Something began to shift. And so I went back to Linda that week. And we had a friendship for you know close to a decade after I graduated. Oh. So it really is Linda who opened me to all this. And of course, later, there were folks who were very important to me and continue to be very important to me. But it was Linda who, who started this for me. can you tell us a little bit about your new book? I'd be happy to. It's called Trace Evidence, and it's a triptych. And the second section of the book is really a long meditation on home, belonging, and the mysteries of fate. And its occasion is this bus accident. I was on an overnight bus in Morocco that crashed while I was in Morocco conducting genealogical research. And... I was medevaced to Zurich, Switzerland, where I'd lived with my ex-partner and had three surgeries, long convalescence. It was a huge ordeal, and there were a lot of questions inside that experience, specifically how on earth could it happen that a year I believed I would spend in my ancestral homeland turned out to be mostly spent in my childhood bedroom? What does that mean? And that's the second section, and the first and third sections take up questions of mixed-race identity, time, mortality, all of which is in orbit of love, which I think is, is the most essential aspect that the book tries to touch.
1: I cannot wait for these poems to be in the world. Now, you, you were born in the Bronx, though, right? Sure was. Your father was Irish-American, mm-hmm. and then your mother was Moroccan. Um, what do you remember about growing up in the Bronx?
0: You know what what I remember about the Bronx was placelessness. You know, we were we were a blended family. We also came from communities that were not around us, and so especially for my mother, who was is from Morocco, Arab, Muslim. Uh, my father being Irish American from New York, but we. We were raised, my brothers and I were raised in a predominantly Puerto Rican community and we stood out, right? It's this like hyper visibility, invisibility thing, right? Where there's a lot of attention and no attention or there's a lot of attention and no comprehension or understanding. Um, And what I remember of the Bronx, too, was leaving the Bronx. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we we often left. Um, We lived in a part of the Bronx called Kingsbridge. And my brothers and I went to primary school in Riverdale, which was about three miles north of uh, where we grew up. And we went to high school in Westchester in New Rochelle. And when I got my first job and started working, that was happening in Manhattan. I worked at Armani Exchange and retail on 51st and 5th Avenue. And so it was always a question of of where we were going, where life was going to happen away from where we lived. And the amount of othering that took place in each of these destinations, the, you know, Jesuit brother-run high school in New Rochelle, the Catholic primary school in Riverdale, you know, midtown Manhattan, wherever it was, there were ways in which I myself and my family were othered for racial reasons, geographic reasons, cultural reasons.
1: Is your experience of that, that othering different in the U.S.? From outside of it. Oh my goodness! Completely. Yeah. It was
0: it was incredible. It was just incredible to see how the operative terms of identity shifted when I moved to Europe. And so when I, when I started my time in Europe in London, I was working in financial sales and consulting um, right out of college, trying to figure out how to be a poet in the world, but needing a job <laughs> and some money because there was debt and you know. And so I get this job and I'm working in Midtown Manhattan and it's a multinational. I studied literature and foreign languages in college. I was able to use Italian and a little bit of Spanish. And it was exciting and global. And I somehow managed to convince the, the director of my department to transfer me to the London office where the team that worked with Italian clients was based. And so it took me about four to six months, but I made it happen. And as soon as I got to London, the identity markers of race in a U.S. American context or of queerness, which were the first two kind of vehicles of identification and understanding those around you, fell to the wayside and I was the American guy. Uh I was the American guy on the team with... The person to my right who was from Paris, the person to my left who was from Milan, the person in front of me who was from Dublin. And so it was international in a way that was very different from the kind of international experience that I'd had in New York, which, of course, is an extremely international, diverse place. There was a lot of folks who were born and raised elsewhere who arrived for their professional life, you know, so they went to the Bocconi and then they they came to London for their first job. And so fitting into that kind of rubric, you know, or that conception of one another, you know, meant that I was the American first, maybe the guy from New York, maybe the gay guy from New York, but race was sort of less, less operative. And that was really fascinating because when I returned to New York about five years later to pursue the MFA at NYU, it was kind of a a reverse culture shock in a way. You know, there were ways that I had to relearn My culture of origin and particularly around race, it was a little bit of not that I had ever forgotten challenges and the questions that were so central to my early life. But it was a little bit like, oh, right, that conversation, Uh right, that thing. There was xenophobia and a load of it in Europe. It wasn't that, you know, I don't mean to romanticize or idealize the experiences that I had in London, Zurich, and Milan, which were the primary cities that I lived in while I was abroad. But there's a particular energy Mm -hmm. and centrality to U.S. American racial politics that sucked me right back in.
1: That's really wonderfully said I, I, I'm glad you're back and I'm sorry
0: <laughs> that, you the,
1: that you had that re-entry when you first got here Because I know it's, um, it's just a different lifestyle mm-hmm. And you brought all of that globalism back with you And it's in the poems too Which is one of the reasons I'd hoped we'd get to talk about it Sharif, would you please share Wound with us?
0: I would be happy to wound it has taken me years to begin this poem i have not known from where to speak because i had not been positioned i had not positioned myself to speak in this way it has taken me years to begin not only this poem but being a person at all which is required for speaking it turns out which is frankly speaking the thing i have most wanted most needed to do. Not for my ego, not exactly, but to clear what had positioned me in the first place, in no place.
1: I know we talked a little bit about um, the globalism of your work and the influences that have guided the poems over the years. And your new book starts out with a quote from the great philosopher Franz Fanon. I believe in the possibility of love. That is why I endeavor to trace its imperfections, its perversions. I love that quote. I'd never heard it before until mm-hmm. I until I read the book. So and how have you, you know, as a poet endeavored to trace love's imperfections and perversions?
0: That has been the kind of unknown to me, unbeknownst to me, guiding light or engine. And it was something that I came to see in graduate school, I think, as I was putting the first book together, that as much as the work seems to be on the surface level about identity, quote unquote, right, like these are poems that explore mixed race identity. These are poems that explore blackness in the Arab world, that really the thing that I'm after The lament inside the meditations is the separateness of our species. It just has always seemed to me as plain as day that we are so obviously all the same thing. And yet here we are in the social world. Here we are having to navigate the terms of the world that we have constructed. And for me as an individual, who is not really accounted for by those terms that has put me in a place that makes the reality of oneness of human oneness irrefutable. And in some respect, the truest thing available to me, the thing that is there for me as someone who is racialized differently, depending on who's looking, whose queer identity comes to the surface in this room and then racial identity falls to the background. It's the dynamic nature of identity is that we are who we are. And then in certain contexts, certain identities that we carry or inhabit come to the fore. You know, and even within that, as a mixed person, as a light-skinned black person, as a North African, right? There are all these assumptions that, my body and my experience are are met with by the individuals around me who presume to know and whatever it is they think they know what is happening almost certainly is divisiveness is separateness even if what is happening in the interpretation of me and my body is to unify say you know another black person embracing me as black and we are black together that's still which is powerful and welcome and sustaining on a spiritual or soul level, It still in some respect is a division or a distancing. You know, anytime an identity forms or a group of individuals unify around an identity, there is another distinct but related identity that forms as a consequence of that, right? That there's a line that's drawn about us around us, which makes a them, which makes a they over there. And so it's not that I want to flatten our differences. It's not that I feel persecuted by my circumstances as a mixed person. It's not most of the assumptions that people have (laughs) about, about the reality of my experience. It's about the way that all of this was made. And in that, in its constructedness, necessarily, therefore, there is a lived... Point at which the constructedness reveals itself and it dissolves, it falls apart. And I'm interested in that. I'm interested in that moment because I was born into that moment. I, In some ways, I exist there. I think the second piece of that, you know, for me as a literary artist, is the way that those circumstances, which I feel are what was here waiting for me affect language and affect our ability to communicate with one another and to circle back to the Fanon, to love one another, to really love one another, to really see one another. And how how do we do that? And the question is maybe a little more pointed or charged or contentious for someone who within a particular social context is illegible, because how do you love an individual who, in a way doesn't even really exist within a given social context, right? Like, how how does one do that, right? Mm -hmm. And love in all its expressions, you know, romantic sexual love, familial love, maternal love, right? Mm Self-love, all of it, right? That love is the thing at stake, it seems to me, inside these compartmentalizations and uh, separations and divisions. And so, you know, on the point of placelessness or, you know, not really having a a position and um, language, speaking, communication. There's a poem that opens up the first section that maybe I could read. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, It's, I should say that the two words in the title are in quotation marks. I don't want to explain away the poem, but that I'm really trying to kind of foreground that the object of inquiry is language and name, naming. So this is called Mulatto Quadroon, Somewhere Between. I want to tell you what for me it has been like. To speak at all, I must occupy a position, in a system whose positions I appear not to occupy. Though some say such non-position is my position, speak from that placeless place outside the system, etc., some would say and have said, if the placeless place is created by terms of the system, then it must be within the system, even if it appears otherwise. And so it may be that the position, presumed to be of body, might better be regarded as a position of thought or a receptivity to possible experience, as conceived by the still implausible eye Of a man who defined the flimsy self he carried against those whom he did not understand, or know, or in any real sense, see. And if the possible vision of that implausible eye accounted for you in name only, then filed you under consequence, side effect, it is not that the system fails to position you, it positions you actively and specifically nowhere." so that you appear on the outside, but remain within, or you appear within, but remain on the outside, which is to say, in other words, apart and a part. And so if to speak in a particular social world, I must occupy a position, and that world consists of positions that are clear, but none of which clearly I occupy, then it may be, that I cannot, even if I want to, tell you what, for me, it has been like, and so.
1: Thank you for reading that poem, Sharif. I need to take a minute to collect my thoughts because it's just um, so powerful, both in you know, intentionality but also your, um, your syntax has a kind of musicality that just i really um respond to in a way that's visceral Thanks. and unexpected so i i loved reading the poem this morning but i was even more knocked out by it when you when you just shared it with thank us. you and it reminded me that you know this whole book i mean I, I don't want to generalize but so much of the book is is interrogating this absence of or resistance to definition and I wonder if that doesn't have something to do with it. I mean, there's cultural identity, but you've also got your, your national identities. You've also got your identities as a, a poet who studied to be a financier. You've also got your identities uh, being back in the U.S. You know, there are all these layers to that, that mm-hmm. somehow, you know, the archive of your life, the archive of who you are... You know, is it the center of the book, even if it's not being said? So maybe if you could talk a little bit more about about that, because I'm so fascinated. I mean, when you told me that you'd worked in finance, I was like, what? Most poets I know, you know, it's not that they can't, but they don't want to, (laughs) because numbers aren't words. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I didn't want to either. <laughs> <laughs> the debt though, I right? did it for three years begrudgingly. Um, it it was available to me. And I should say too that I, I I was a comparative literature and creative writing major as an undergraduate. I'm not exactly sure how I managed to get a job in finance and consulting after college, you know, but it it was what was available to me, you know. I I really appreciate the sensitivity of your question and you know, what I haven't had the opportunity to say in my capacity as guest editor working with you or now during this conversation is how meaningful it is to me to know that a poet I admire as much as you find something in my work that they respond to, you know, so thank you for the generosity inside what you just said, even if it didn't feel like a generosity to you. You know, with that first poem, the poem that I just read, you know, I think Or I love thinking about the way that individual poems come together to form a section or a collection. Uh It's exhilarating to me. I love it. I love thinking about it. There are so many possibilities. It's so exciting. And the opening poem establishes the geography, which was important to me, because part of the question of of my life, which is what I hear inside your question, you know, saying that it it feels like an archive of, of my history, of my personal history, is the ways in which my family and really my generation, my and my brother's generation, necessarily have to navigate a kind of dual legacy of the Moroccan heritage of which we emerge, from which we emerge, but also the kind of contemporary happenings and political circumstances which are of the place where we now are, the geography where we are now, which of course is informed and even dictated by U.S. American history. And so... You know, I think a reviewer of the first book talked about, called it the superimposition of Morocco's multiple colonial legacies on top of U.S. American racial politics. And that's exactly it, you know, and that's part of the complication of it, right, is that I am a mixed individual with a white parent and a black parent. But what does that mean right like to to use that language is to not acknowledge national origin or cultural context right and those pieces are what make this family story so particular or what i believe uh-huh. make this story so particular which is questions of identity in the north of africa are really complicated when we think of The colonial history in the north of Africa, people typically think of French occupation, which is the most recent. But the Arab presence in the north of Africa is itself a colonial history. And so what you have in the north of Africa are Arabized ethnic groups of various phenotypic expression. And so it's it's what makes possible a dark-skinned North African who identifies as Arab and does not identify with... Africa, or blackness at all. Mm. And so my mother would be, you know, the speaker's mother would be (laughs) one of those individuals, right? And so what then happens when that individual emigrates to the United States of all places, right, which has the relentless, persistent, unavoidable, pathological, racialization of one another, internalized so deeply that we don't even know that it's happening. It's so automatic. You know, there's a line in one of the poems, a poem called Self-Determination with the question of race that says, some of us don't even see how we see. Mm-hmm. And so what, what of that individual's experience? You know, the identity markers that are germane to my mother's experience are Muslim, woman, Moroccan, Arab, eventually mother, right? These are the ways that she understands herself and that she names herself. And then there's this question of blackness that is thrust upon her when she comes to the United States. And so it's not that I think an individual in her circumstances must revise their self-concept. It becomes important to consider those circumstances when children are involved, when there is a first-generation black American experience that is happening outside of Black American identity in the way that that phrase is typically used, right uh-huh. So which is to say not a descendant of uh, mm-hmm. enslaved Africans in the United States. So I think that this is sort of like the the origin point, really It's uh-huh. like all all of this emerges from that set of circumstances, you know and I think the inclination for a lot of people is to flatten the complexity. Uh-huh. So I think when I when I kind of trace out, those circumstances and, you know, how my cultural inheritance and by extension my identities are informed by those circumstances what I'm not reaching for is a simple irrefutable answer. I'm not even really reaching for an answer I am generating questions you know, these are the circumstances right? Nobody asked for them, nobody alive created them but here they are, and here we are having to navigate them, right? That's part of what I believe I can do. One of the things I feel that I can do as, as an artist. Mm.
1: Oh, Sharif, that is well said. Man, thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Thank you. On the podcast, and I look forward to the book. Trace Evidence comes out in March 2023.
0: Thank you so much for having me, Adrian.
1: Big thanks to Shree Shanahan. Shanahan's second collection, Trace Evidence, will be out from Ten House Books next month. He's an assistant professor of English at Northwestern University and the guest editor for the summer 2023 issues of Poetry Magazine. You can read three poems from Trace Evidence in the December 2022 issue of Poetry, available in print and online. This show is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Reservoir, Alabaster Diplume, John McCowan, Rob Masaryk, and Irreversible Entanglements. That's it. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and thank you so much for listening.